thank you. Lord, I thank you for being our God. Lord, I pray that you'll use this sermon today, that we can discover one of the men that you've used, and that this will just be an inspiration for us as, as we see a, a simple man that you use for mighty ways because he trusted and put his devotion in your son. Lord, I pray that your words will speak loudly, that mine will be quiet, and that you will just use this time to give your name glory and nothing else. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, for the, for the foreseeable future, we're going to be in 1 Peter. And if we're really going to understand 1 Peter the way we should understand it, we have to study this man that wrote 1 Peter. This guy's mind and, and what is going through his life early on and, and, and as it develops into what we see as Peter later on in life as he, as he leads the greatest movement in the history of mankind. You see, in Peter he has, he has three names. His given name is Simon. If we look at the Greek, it's Petros or, or, or Peter. And then Jesus would have called him Cephas which is Aramaic for the rock. And i got to be honest with you, I'm not sure that that Jesus called him Cephas because he knew that he'd be the foundation of this movement or because he knew that he'd be that hard to get through. But anyways, as we discover this, I want us to to really think about who Peter is and and use this knowledge as we study the book, 1 Peter. Let's start with the text. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ... To those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be God the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, according to His great mercy. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And if we're going to understand this, this book of 1 Peter, we must look at the context. You see, I remember I listened to my literature professor when I was in Montclair State, and we were talking about these secular books, and he kept talking about knowing who the author was, knowing when it was written, knowing all these things about the book before we even actually read a word in the book. And I have to be honest, I thought he was crazy. But now that I've studied the Bible and this is my job, I understand the importance in it. So let's pick up here. We're we're picking up in Acts 12 and the church is seeing an uptick in persecution. And in Acts 12, we see that, that James, the brother of John, is martyred. And Herod, Herod sees that, that this pleases the Jewish people and, and he has this desire to do the same with Peter. Peter's been leading this church in Jerusalem for 33 years and Herod arrests him and and all the church is praying earnestly that that Peter will get out. And he does and he shows up and and Rhoda's at the door and she shuts the gate in his face. She's like, whoa, what is going on? They're at John Mark's mother's house and and finally she lets him in and while he's there, he, he discovers something that he has to leave and Acts 12 says that Peter had to leave. Now, if we look at 1 Peter 5.13, we see that it says that this book, 1 Peter, was written in Babylon, and it says she. It's called she, the church. But I believe that this book was actually written in Rome. 
Babylon was used at this time as a, as a cryptic term to describe Rome in both the Bible and in extra-biblical material. So, so I believe it's written in Rome. On top of that, I think it would be really difficult for, for Peter to go to Babylon, for him to write these two books, and then for him to get back to Rome by 64 A.D., and then to die sometime between 64 and 67 A.D., right at the time when Nero is starting to persecute the Roman church in 64 A.D. So this book, this book I believe was written in 63 A.D., and it had some help from, from some different people like Silvanus, which we call Silas, which we know from, from Paul's writings. And I also believe that it's more plausible that, that Mark and, and Silas and Peter were together in Rome. So as we look through this, we're going to look at, at who wrote the book. And that seems kind of weird for us because we look at Scripture and we're like, all right, First Peter, this book was written by Peter. But, but there's so many people that are trying to prove that wrong. They're trying to tell us that, that it could not have been written by Peter. And one of the reasons that we really think that this book is written by Peter is that in 97 A.D., Clement actually quotes 1 Peter. And again, in 125 A.D., Polycarp does the same. But where these other people come from is they see this really advanced Greek. And you're going to see it. As we go through 1 Peter, you're going to see, even in the English, that this is very advanced theological writing. And they say, no, this could not have been Peter's writing. Because in Acts 4.13, it talks about Peter being a simple man, just a common man, a blue-collared man. But if you read it really closely, you see that they're astonished by it. You see, on top of that, at the time, business is done in Greek. Peter's a fisherman, so he knows business. Peter knows that. And then also, as he develops his communication, it starts to be his business. He becomes a pastor. He's no longer a fisherman. And I have this buddy. I talk about him often. He's a, we called him the pagan. He called himself the pagan. It wasn't just us. But he came to Jesus, and he did it while he was in jail. And while he's in jail, he's reading this Bible, and I could see such a difference in his writing. I could see a difference in the way he spoke. And I'm sure the same thing has happened with Peter as the Holy Spirit is working in his life. And he's learning all these theological aspects of what God wants him to write down to the people. God intervenes in his life. So I believe without a shadow of a doubt that this book was written by Peter with maybe a little help from Silas, who was Greek, by the way. So if we're going to answer these questions that I'm, that I'm raising, we must discover who this Peter is. And so let's start with the text. Verse 1, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Petros, apostolos, Jesu Christu. If you listen to that, you should have heard the transliteration. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. We know that Peter is an apostle, but what else do we know about Peter? First of all, Peter is nothing special. The Bible tells us that he was uneducated, that he was a fisherman, and, and he would not be the first choice for a leader of the greatest movement in the history of mankind. I'm telling you, if I'm choosing a leader to lead my church, I'm picking somebody that's smart, somebody that's educated, maybe he's a little bit athletic, maybe he can inspire people with his words, but Peter is a fool. Man, Peter's not inspiring anybody. 
He's socially awkward. He opens his mouth when he should not. And one of my favorite stories is the transfiguration. And and my favorite writings of it are in Mark. And it's in chapter 9. And let me set the stage for you. Basically, Jesus takes James and John and Peter up on the mountain. And often we say it's because they're the blessed ones, but I wonder if it's not because he has to keep an extra eye on these three. But that's beside the point. Let me pick this up in verse 2 of Mark 9. And Jesus was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. So let me get this right. Mark is telling one of the greatest stories in Peter's life. He's listening to this from Peter, and the best way to describe this is Clorox bleach. I mean, are you serious? We're talking about Clorox bleach. We're talking about Jesus who is radiating. I imagine him, he's glowing. And I've seen some white clothes, but I've never seen them glow. And then in verse 4 it says, And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. So let me put this in perspective for you. And this would be my perspective, but this is like Babe Ruth, Ted Williams and Tony Gwynn coming to me to talk about hitting. What should I do? I should probably listen. But yet, what does Peter do? What does Peter do? Verse 9, And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And what I can say is that seems a little bit awkward. I mean, you have the greatest men of the faith. You have rock stars of the faith. You have the hall of fame of the faith. And Peter is the one talking. No, Peter. Right? It is good that they are here. Not that you're here. Peter, you need to listen and you need to learn. Right? You have two of the greatest people in the history of the Bible. And on top of that, you have the Son of Man. And you're asking them about tents? I don't think they need tents. And if we're to be fair, I get it. I mean, every one of us would be terrified. But on top of that, look at James and John. They, They knew to stay quiet. And if we look at Proverbs 17, it tells us that a wise man keeps his mouth shut. And the beginning of 18 tells us that a fool expresses his opinion. The leader of the Christian church, besides Jesus, of course, is a fool. And yet God uses him. This is why I believe the Bible is true. I mean, why would a leader talk about all the things that make him a fool unless those things that make him a fool humble him and allow people to see his story before he comes to Christ and see this transformation in Peter's life? And not only this, not only was Peter a fool, but he was hasty also. I mean, all we have to do is look at when Peter meets Jesus. Peter's brother, Andrew, is the first one to meet Jesus. And this is how I believe that it went down. Andrew is a disciple of John the Baptist. And he's watching John baptize all these people. And Jesus shows up and and John says, this is the Lamb of God. And John, he baptizes Jesus. And the Spirit in the form of a dove comes down on him. And then we hear this voice of Jesus saying that that this is His beloved Son of whom He is well pleased. I mean, can you imagine this event? It it sticks in the head of Andrew as Jesus is 
taken to the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights. And then Andrew, he's talking to Peter and he tells him about this Jesus guy. And then in Matthew 4, verse 18, Jesus shows up on the scene. And while Jesus was walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately, immediately they leave their nets and follow him. Now I get it, there's some background. But I don't know about you, if I'm in this situation, I'm checking this guy, I'm trying to figure out, I'm asking him questions. Why are you the Lamb of God? I'm not just putting my trust in him. But these two men immediately leave. Now it's in haste, I get it. But I really like to feel that the Holy Spirit is moving in these two men at this time. But this isn't the only example of hastiness and rashness in Peter's life. There are so many. And the one that I really want to camp on today is this moment in Peter's life that I think changed everything. The disciples, they've spent three years with Jesus. And they're about to sit around this last supper. And Jesus, he pulls out this bowl and he's washing the disciples' feet. And yet Peter says, no way, you're not doing that to me. And then Jesus says, I must, or you're not part of this. And Peter, he says, oh, then do everything. Wash my head, wash my feet, wash everything. He's like this this super Christian. I kind of think of him as this annoying Christian who treats everything like it's a game. You have to be the most humble. You have to give the most to the poor. You have to do the most. And it just becomes annoying. But what we see is that, that Jesus even uses the super Christian. He uses those that think they're perfect. He'll humble them first, but... And after supper, I, I can imagine this conversation. And I don't think I'm too far-fetched, because this is right after James and John are arguing about who should be at the, the right hand of Jesus. And I imagine that, that Peter gets involved in it a little bit. And Jesus gets so tired of listening to him talk, he's like, alright, stop. Enough. And he says, Simon? Simon? Luke 22, right here, 31 and through 34. Behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. And Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. And Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not, will not crow this day until you deny me three times. I mean, Jesus is basically saying, Peter, you would have no faith if it were not for me. You would have no faith if I did not intervene. You would be lost without me. And if you don't believe it, just wait till tonight. And I'm not sure Peter really gets it. And the night moves on, and we see that that Peter is going to prove that he would go to prison or to, to death for Jesus. Or maybe he's just being stupid, I don't know. But he he takes out the the sword and he cuts this man's ear off. Now, I don't think he's trying to cut the ear off. I think he's trying to kill this man. So obviously Peter is a terrible warrior. He has nothing to offer. And my favorite story is Jesus bends down, he picks up this ear, and he heals the man. And yet that doesn't change the way Peter thinks. Our God, 
Our God uses every moment, even the moments when we are not willing to learn. And Peter, he has to go through this denial. He must be humbled. Either we will be humble or we will be humbled. There's no room for pride. There's no room for the proud when we are following Christ. Peter, his understanding and his heart is going to be shaped in this moment that we're about to talk about. And often we don't understand how the the different segments in our lives lead to, to different things in our lives and inspires the very next moment. Our God is working out every detail. And John 18 narrates this most influential moment in Peter's life. Starting at verse 15, Simon Peter followed Jesus and so did another disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood outside at the door. So the other disciple who was known to the high priest went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, you also are not one of his man's disciples, are you? And he said, I am not. Now the servants and the officers who had made a charcoal fire because it was cold and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them standing and warming himself. Look at this scene. It's cold. They have a charcoal fire. And sometimes we miss these details that are so relevant in this story. And I want us to hold on to this charcoal fire as we skip down to verse 25 and then go on. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself, so they said to him, You are also not one of his disciples, are you? And he denied it and said, I am not. And then one of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter's had cut off, asked, Did I not see you in the garden with him? And Peter again denied it, and at once the rooster crowed. And I don't think John captures this moment quite like Matthew does. Matthew says that Peter denies Jesus. And then he does it again with an oath. And then he does it again with a curse. And immediately the rooster crows and he weeps bitterly. Weeps bitterly. And then Peter disappears and he would not be heard of again or spoken of again until Jesus' resurrection when he's outran to the tomb by John. I mean, let me get this right. He can't swing bad. He can't run. I don't, I'm not going to sign this guy up for my team. This guy has nothing to offer. You and I have nothing to offer in this kingdom until we've been humbled and have put our faith in Jesus Christ. And I'm so thankful that we have forgiveness, that we have grace, and that we have mercy. I'm so thankful. So let's fast forward to John 21, starting at verse 4. Just as the day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore. Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to them, Children, do you have any fish? And they answered Him, No. And He said to them, Cast your net onto the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they cast it, and now they are not able to haul it in because of the quantity of the fish. I mean, this makes no sense. For fish, there is no sides of the boat. I mean, this is a miracle, and even Peter, even in this time, does not get it. It takes John to point it out. And even during this time, Peter is the most ambitious one. As he dives into the water, and at least he can swim, and he swims a hundred yards to shore. And the boat is pulling all these fish. 
And then he gets out. And when he gets out on land, we see this, this scene. Jesus has a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. Jesus does it so often. He takes us back to this time when we made a mistake and He redeems it. Not always literal, but spiritually. Jesus is setting the scene. He's going to to redeem Peter by asking the very questions that he responded to back in John 18. And I can imagine Peter is struggling. He's struggling with what he said that night. I mean, he goes back to his own life. He goes back to what he did before Jesus called him. He's trying to avoid the purpose that Jesus has for him. And Jesus intercedes. Verse 10, Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. So we ask ourselves, why is there 153 fish in this story? I'm telling you, it's just because this story is true. There's nothing special about this 153. And fishermen, they always know how many fish they caught. I mean, we look at John. He doesn't even know all the disciples that were with him. But he knows these details of how many fish are caught. I mean, it reminds me of this one story. I'm up camping with some of my buddies. And we have a fire going. And the fire's kind of going out. And we think it's a good idea to pour gasoline on this fire. It's not. And the fire goes up into the gasoline can. My buddy drops it. It falls on the ground. Another buddy kicks it into the stream. His pant leg catches on fire. He rolls in the ground and jumps in the water. And just as you look at it, the entire stream is on fire. We call that place fire on water. We went back there often, actually, because of that. But I can tell you where I'm going with this is I don't remember all the guys that were there. But I remember these details. These details. And and that's why this, this story is so true. Throughout John, he tells us all these details about what is going on. This is a true story. Let's look at verse 12. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast with me. Now none of the disciples dared to ask him, who are you? They knew that it was the Lord. And Jesus came and He took bread and He gave it to them. And so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus revealed to the disciples after He was raised from the dead. Our Jesus is not a ghost. Man, He has a physical body and He enjoys fish and bread. And He wants to use this plain and simple Peter to carry out this plan. And this is where it gets good. Verse 15, when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said, Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And Peter said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, then feed my lambs, feed my lambs, be a teacher, Peter, tell them, even the smallest of them about my word. In verse 16, he said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, yes, Lord. You know that I love you. And he said to him, tend my sheep. Tend my sheep. Be a pastor, Peter. Take care of my people. Help the poor. Counsel them. Love them. And then in 17, he does it a third time. 
Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he had said it a third time. And I can imagine Peter going back, transported back to this moment in John 18 when he denies his Lord, the one he loves. And Jesus says, do you love me, Peter? Lord, you know everything and you know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Feed my sheep. Preach it, Peter. How will they know me unless someone preaches it? And Peter does exactly that in Acts 2. Peter brings the word. Peter is a different person from this time forward. And we see it throughout Scripture. Verse 18 in John 21. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This is said to show what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. This is what Jesus said to Peter the first time he meets him. He says, follow me. You will no longer be a fisher of fish, but you will be so much greater because you have my name. You will be a fisher of men. And Peter turns and he gives the rest of his life to Jesus And in the end, this man, this this man that was so prideful but is humbled, will hang on a cross upside down because he will not be hanged the same way Jesus was. The pride and the proud is now humbled. An average, prideful, rash man is now something completely different. And we have to look at this transformation. Starting at 1 Peter 1-2, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ, in the sprinkling with His blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Peter is saying, I was a wretched man who denied Christ, yet God knew that I was His before the beginning of time, and the Spirit saved me through Jesus Christ and His death on the cross. I mean, now that is grace, that is peace. And it doesn't stop there. It's multiplied to anybody who will listen over and over again till we come in this room. Are we willing to be humbled? Are we willing to surrender to Jesus? To give up these young and worldly ways and turn to the one true God? Man, Peter is so bold from this time forward. Look at his, at his sermon in Acts 2, starting at verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourself know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, and yet you crucified and killed him by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosening the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. This is not a seeker-friendly sermon. I mean, he's basically looking out at the people and he says, your sin and 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 my sin killed Jesus. I mean, did you not see the signs and the wonders? I mean, look at what Jesus did. Did you not see him give eyesight to the blind? Did you not see him put the power back in the legs of the lame man? Did you not see him feed the 5,000 with sardines and saltines? 
Did you not see him hang on the cross? And yet you did nothing. But death could not hold him. Surrender to Christ now. And 3,000 people come to Christ and are baptized on that day. And who do you think these people are in 1 Peter 1.1? There are these people that, that traveled back to this Roman providences and they start churches and they share the faith and the faith is started to be multiplied. And if we look at Peter, we see the same man who was given the ability to heal a man in Acts 3. This same man that was once prideful, a super Christian, now gives all the glory to Jesus when he heals this man through the power of Christ. This glory hog gives God all the glory. He is humbled and and he owes everything to God and he sees this mercy that God has bestowed on him even in the suffering in the dark times. Our Peter is a changed man. And after he heals this lame man, we see this high priest family show up and they're wondering about whose power this come from. And if we see in verse 8 of chapter 4 of Acts, Peter does not, he does not let this be confused with his own power. And then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you that by all the people of Israel, by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders which have become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. These priests are taken back and they know they have no power because of these signs and wonder that Peter has done through Jesus. Verse 18, so they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we, we cannot but speak of what he has been seen and heard. I mean, this is boldness. Everything in Peter's life after that moment in John 21 is boldness. And God, He orchestrates every point in our lives. Every point in Peter's life. Every point in Peter's life was necessary. Every moment in your life is necessary. It shapes us, informs us. Even in hostility, when things look bleak, God, He is shaping us. I mean, can you imagine the heartbreak in Peter as he denies Christ? I do not know Him. I swear that I do not know Him. I curse that I do not know Him. And then the rooster crows and Matthew says that Peter wept. He weeps bitterly. Have you ever done something so bad that you just wept bitterly? You see, I remember when my cousin Tag was born. And my cousin Tag has Down syndrome. 
And my uncle is probably one of the greatest men that I have ever met in this world. And, and he has this Down syndrome baby. And I'm going, God, why would you give my uncle a Down syndrome baby? And the more I thought about it, the more this rage came up in my life. And, and I couldn't control it. And I started to rage in my household. And my father and I get in this fight. The man that I respect more than anybody in this world, I got into a fight. And I hurt him. On that night, I hurt my father, and I get up, and I walk out of the house, and I grab my dog, and I get into my car, and I just start to drive south, and I have no intention of stopping. And while I'm in that car, I just wept bitterly. And as I got close to Fort Collins, where my uncle lives, something inside of me said, call your uncle. And I showed up at his doorstep and he was more than happy to see me. And I walked in, into that room and I picked up this little baby. Maybe the cutest baby that I'd ever seen. What the world would call a something was a someone. This little baby, so innocent. Still innocent. Honorary, but, but innocent. Not jaded by these evil ways of the world. And something changed inside of me. Now my uncle is walking with Christ now, and I don't know if it's because of tag. But I can tell you that every salvation is a miracle. The fact that God could use a ravenous beast like me to preach up here is a miracle. The fact that God could use you, that you would be in this room, is a miracle. And how do we share that with others? That's our story. Nobody can deny your story. What has God, what has Jesus done in your life? And when we tell that story, Jesus transforms life and He gets the glory. I love Peter's words in verse 3. It sets the stage for this entire book in 1 Peter. And as we go through it, let us understand the man that was changed by Jesus Christ. This man that had denied Christ, yet Jesus redeemed him. And Peter, through the work of salvation in the Holy Spirit and this hope in Jesus Christ, is now the leader of the church because Jesus Christ... Redeemed Him. Verse 3, Blessed be God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to His great mercy. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. I think sometimes we read this just according to great mercy. But I think we should read it according to His great mercy. You see, in anger we have no hope. In lust, we have no hope. In destruction, we have no hope. In cancer and in sickness, we have no hope. But in the resurrection of Jesus, we have hope. And Peter saw this hope. A changed man who writes this sermon, who writes this letter to talk about this hope that he has in Jesus Christ. I mean, how powerful 
is that. And we get to study and discover deeper the book that this man wrote. Let's pray. Oh, Father, I thank you. I thank you that you save wretched men and women. I thank you that you saved and redeemed Peter. And that you gave him the boldness to preach the word. And and whoever he preached it to, preached to somebody else. And they preached to somebody else. And they preached to somebody else. And eventually in the year 2020, we get to walk with you. I pray that there's anybody that has not surrendered their life to Jesus, your son, that they would do it right now because they don't have to wait. Because every story, every moment in our life has purpose and you designed it that way and you give us purpose in everything that you do. Let that purpose lead towards salvation. Let that purpose lead towards us sharing that word with others. And let us constantly be humbled and be thankful that you chose a wretched man like me. I hope I never get to a point where I really understand it, Lord. Keep me humble. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.